sorry, Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your amazing word, Lord. We're so grateful that we get to study it together as a family, God, and allow you to speak through it to our hearts. We yield our hearts to you. We ask, God, that you would do a supernatural work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts through your word this morning. Our desires for us to grow in our walk with you and to be doers of the word, not hearing it only, deceiving ourselves. We want to bring you glory with everything that we are, and we want our lives to reflect you. So use these verses to make disciples today, God. We want you to make us into the people you want us to be. We commit it to you and yield to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. My heart was directed a little differently this morning related to not being in Proverbs, and um, I really sense that he really wants to encourage us regarding perseverance this morning. Just a little background on the book of Hebrews. We're not told who wrote the book of Hebrews. Many assume that it's the Apostle Paul. It could be, but it doesn't matter. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit's the one that inspired the book of Hebrews, and it's a very meaty book. I mean, it's probably, teach, to, to teach it is, is probably the second hardest book in the New Testament to teach beyond Romans. And um, it, it definitely is full of so many great, amazing themes. And uh, it's, it's hard to just take one little part of it and, and disconnect it from the rest of it, but I'll attempt to kind of give you a little background, especially if you're newer to the scriptures. Um, the book of Hebrews was written to Jewish believers. It was meant to exhort, warn, and encourage them. They had made professions of faith, but it was in, meant to encourage them to not turn away 
from their faith in Jesus Christ and not go back to Judaism. To resist the temptation of going back to the law of Moses. You may remember Peter in Acts chapter 15 when he was communicating to the Jewish religious leaders having to give an account of his encounter with Cornelius and Cornelius' house and all that, and he's doing that, but then they come together and really talk about the role of the law in the life of a Gentile, a non-Jew, what's going to be the role of the law of Moses, and Peter says, I believe by the Holy Spirit, why should we put a yoke on them that we nor our fathers were able to bear? You don't want to go back to the law of Moses. The law of Moses was never meant to be a means by which we become holy or become right with God. It, 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 it's a means by which we recognize that we need a savior and we can't save ourselves. And so they were, they were go, being tempted to go back to that, offering sacrifices again, trying to earn a right standing with God. All of that means those things because they may not have thought it through in terms of the implications of going back to Judaism, but that's basically what they were getting ready to try to attempt to do, is to go back and trying to be justified uh, erroneously by their works and it's, you know, his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Why would you go back to that? So they were also considering doing this because they were going through a lot of sufferings at the time. And they were experiencing that as a result of persecution. It was becoming more and more intense. They likely were getting insulted and ridiculed and all of that, possibly mocked or made fun of. We don't have to deal with that very much in our culture, but I believe it's coming in an increasing way. They may have lost employment. They may have been put out of the synagogue, which meant you lost your livelihood. If you're a man working in the trades, that's where you got all your connections. That's where you got your referrals was from being connected to the synagogue. So they were put out of that. Then they, they had their income uh, affected by that. They could have lost family, friends. I'm sure they did, because that's what happens with persecution. And so they, they were going through a lot, but it, and it wasn't new for these Jewish believers. We're told back in chapter 10, uh, verses 32 through 34, but recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an, an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. So they were not strangers to persecution. The writer makes mention of this, but now it appears it's really getting to them. It's, it, they, yeah, they took, they took it. They, they endured it. They dealt with things, but now it was really starting to get to them. And so they were considering throwing in the towel, so to speak, going back to... Judaism, back to the law of Moses, trusting in sacrifices, and the erroneous thought or the mirage in your mind can be, things will get better if I go back. Things will go better than they are right now. And that's true for all of us in the sense of the, how tempting it can be when we're, t when we're paying a price for righteousness, we're paying a price for holiness, for being a Christian, we can start to think that it would be better if I wasn't a Christian and we wouldn't, I wouldn't have to go through these things. But as it's been said, 
what the one thing that's more difficult than God's will is being out of God's will. Because now you're now you're he's having to deal with your disobedience and all of that and 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 you're going to have to reap what you've sown and God doesn't want that for us. And so the writer of the book of Hebrews is warning them trying to militate against that erroneous thinking that things are going to get better if they go back to Judaism. And it's, this book is full of warnings. And, and I want to just re- mention a couple of these, a few of these warnings, because he says, he warns them to not neglect their salvation in chapter 2. He warns them, of, don't neglect your salvation. He warns them the danger of unbelief in chapters 3 and 4. He warns them the danger of not maturing in chapters 5 and 6. There actually is a, a danger for us as believers if we don't mature and how God calls us to mature. He warns them of the danger of drawing back in chapter 10 and he warns them of the danger of rejecting the God who is speaking in chapter 12. So he's laying out tremendous consequences related to turning back but at the same time he rejects and refutes any so-called biblical excuses that they may put forth for not continuing with Jesus. And so that's what he's been doing. And, and so they, they want to maybe give some biblical ex- reasons or some things ex- that related to doctrine or whatever. And it's funny, I've walked with the Lord for almost 30 years and I've seen lots of people in backslidden conditions. And so often they start questioning things when they're in a backslidden state that they never used to question before. Things that were so obvious to them and so plain become something they struggle with and and it's it's not these great nuanced arguments and all these things it's just like basic stuff like well how did he fled the earth how could that be possible it's like well the most of the earth is covered with water i mean just go a little bit further and it's all the way covered with i mean god could do that so easily just like the basic things and so um they have these problems with with just you know, doctrine, and he's going to deal with a lot of these things. So he deals with, as if you've studied the book at all, you've seen how he deals with that fact that Jesus is better. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. And as a result of that, uh, there's a lot of implications to that. I mean, better is used, I think, 12 times in the book of Hebrews. And so as you study it, you get to see that Jesus is better than the prophets. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than Aaron, Joshua. He's a better Sabbath. He's better high priest. He offers a better covenant with better access to God. Everything about Jesus is better. And, and that's what you see. He starts out with the whole book with this, how Jesus is better. And because of this better covenant, we get to enjoy a better hope. We get to enjoy a better revelation of God. We get to enjoy a better relationship with God, a better promises from God. We get to enjoy better citizenship, a heavenly citizenship, because the Jews had an earthly hope of going into the promised land. But we have a heavenly hope about heaven and and being able to know Christ and have a personal relationship. So because of that superior hope, we now we have this focus that is all about heaven. We're focusing on a heavenly savior, a heavenly calling this heavenly gift that God extends to us in salvation, that we're citizens of a heavenly country, and we look forward to a very real heavenly, heavenly new Jerusalem. You know, I remember going to Jerusalem for the first time and just being amazed on 
how special that city is. But it's nothing compared to the new Jerusalem that's going to descend from heaven that you read about in the book of Revelation. And then lastly, we have our names written in a heavenly book of life. And so all those things are so much better than what they have. And so now he gets to chapter 12, but before this, he's dealing with these great saints that have gone before us in Hebrews chapter 11. Some of them, some of them have, some people have referred to chapter 11 as the hall of faith and so forth. And so he looks at all these people. What he's saying to them is that you have a very rich history of godly heritage, uh, people that trusted and obeyed God even when it was very, very difficult to do that. And he mentions all these people, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Moses' parents, those involved in the walls falling in Jericho, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, or Barak. I kind of don't want to say Barak. I'd rather say Barak. Um, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel. You know, he mentions all these incredible prophets. And then he talks about these people in this latter part of Hebrews 11 that are very important. And this is very critical to understanding what we're going to look at today. Because it's, I call them the still others, because it starts with that. It starts with those people, still others, that didn't get the fulfillment of what they were looking for, that, that never saw the promise. He talks about those people, and he doesn't even mention their names and all of that, and they're in the hall of faith. And it's, it's just something that we have to understand, that God recognizes everyone that puts their faith in him and endures the things that God's called them to endure. And, and so there's such a great message with all of that to these Jewish believers, but also to us. They needed to hear that what those witnesses would tell them, that is, it was worth it. I don't regret it. If you were to interview all those people in the Hall of Faith, they would say it was totally worth it. What we suffered, that we were, you know, some of us were sawed in two. We were, you know, all these things that, that they suffered at the hand of being faithful to God, they would say it's worth it. And if, if we could do it, by God's grace, you can do it too. And so that's what he's getting at. And so we're told here in verse 1 in chapter 12 that if we run with endurance, we need to run with endurance because this godly heritage, these people in the hall of faith, testify that we can. He says in verse 1, Therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So he begins with therefore, so he's talking about something previously. He's talking about this great cloud of witnesses, these people in um, chapter 11. Now sometimes people, not, not so much today, but a long time ago, people really talked a lot about these great, this great cloud of witnesses as, as people that are loved ones of ours that have gone on to be with heaven, and they're kind of in the gallery of heaven looking down at us, and they're watching us and all of that. That's completely out of context. This great cloud is referring to, again, the people in Hebrews chapter 11. Think about it. It wouldn't be very, it wouldn't be very enjoyable. Heaven wouldn't be heaven if what, how would you like it if you were up in heaven and you had to look down and look at us, you know, and watch our lives? I don't know how much heaven that would be um, to be able to sit and watch us and all of those things. But the point is, is that these people are testifying. They're witnesses. When you're a witness, you testify to something. They're testifying that this is the life that's worth living. 
it was, it's worth it no matter what you go through, and that this race is something that is, that the reward of it and the result of it far, far outweighs the cost of going through the difficulty of it. So he's saying, you're not going to have regrets. You're not going to look back at the end of your life. I've, I've been with people on their deathbed. Precious saints that have walked with the Lord for decades. I, and I never have heard them say, I regret go, drawing closer to God or living a life fully surrendered to Him. No one ever does that. They always regret the opposite. They always say, I wish I would have spent more time with God. I wish I would have been more yielded to Him. I wish that I would be more surrendered to Him because that way I would have been able to please Him more or bless Him more or be used by Him more or be a vessel through whom God could do so many more great things. So we're never going to press into the Lord and surrender more to the Lord and look back and regret and say that was a bad decision. Never. It's never going to happen. So what are we holding back for? What, what, what is it that is holding us back with going fully, whatever, however we define that in terms of fully surrendered to him? What is it that's worth exchanging what his best is for us? What, what is it that we would think that we're going to miss out on? You know, that's exactly what the temptation was in the garden. If you, if you eat of this, you know, you're going to miss out. You're not going to have knowledge. You're not going to be like God. All those things. We, there's always these lies that say if you fully surrender to Christ, you're going to miss out on something that you should, you should want or, or something that you need. And it's not the case. We sang about good, good father. This whole text is about God being a faithful father. And he does, faithful fathers don't hold back things that are good to their kids. They just don't. They, they, can't, they can't help themselves. They have to bless because they love their kids. And our love is infinitely inferior to the love that God has for us. Jesus said, you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? And the Jewish mind would have exploded thinking about how he would give the ultimate gift for a Jew would be the Holy Spirit like that, like the prophets received, like the kings received and had the Holy Spirit come upon them and all of that. The Jewish mind, the fact that God would hold, that would be the ultimate. So God goes right to the ultimate when he says that, that I'm not going to hold anything back from you whatsoever. So he, he says these, these great cloud of, of witnesses, and, and he says we're surrounded. Come out, you're surrounded. You know, come out. You're surrounded. We're surrounded by, by these great cloud of witnesses. What's that mean? It means their testimony in Scripture is testifying everywhere we look that God is faithful, that, God, it, that the running this race is worth it to run hard after him. And, and, and it, we have such great people that are testifying to us. We're not talking about one person or a small hand group of, a handful of people. He says, so great a cloud clouds huge great cloud of witnesses testifying to us this this vast group of people that are saying it's worth it in fact in in chapter 11 verse 32 look back at verse 32 in chapter 11 he says and what more shall i say for the time would fail me to tell of gideon and barak and samson and jephthah also of david and samuel and the prophet so he, does, he speaks of running out of time, not examples. 
to be able to list all the people that have endured running this race and would tell us that it's worth it, that it's worth persevering. None of these Jewish believers could say there wasn't enough examples. <laughs> so the, it's this vast number. Now, in verses 1 through 4, he gives us some instructions on how to run with endurance. In light of the fact of these great witnesses that testify that it's worth it, it's doable, it's, it's greater than we could ever imagine, and what a privilege that it is, he gives us some specific things to do. Because the Jewish believers could say, okay, I know it can be done, God is gracious, it's worth finishing, the race is worth finishing, but how do I do it? And he says, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. So he, he begins a race, and real, uh, talking about this race, and in reality, it's, it's really picturing a marathon. Who, who in this room has run a full marathon? I want to see if there's anybody here. Whoa, we are athletic specimens, aren't we? Okay, what about a half marathon? Whoa, got one. Two? Woo, two. How many of us just think about running marathons? There we go. Okay, so um, when you think about, when you th he, the imagery here is running this race, running a marathon. And when you think about a weight, think about a weight for a runner that's going to run a marathon. If you're a runner, you don't try to get away with wearing something or carrying something that you don't, it's not. In other words, anything that isn't absolutely necessary is a weight. You can talk to people that, you know, we, none of us can relate because none of us are, have ever ran a, mar a full marathon. But I mean, a half marathon's no joke, I'm sure. But, uh, you know, related to running, you have to be as light as possible. You have to be as freed up as possible to get the most out of what you're trying to do. So what if you saw a person getting ready to run a marathon? Let's say it's the New York Marathon, and someone comes up and they have you know, a suitcase with them, or they have a big backpack on with a bunch of stuff in it, and they're getting ready to run this race, and you would look at them like, why are you doing that? I mean, that's, you're making it a lot harder on yourself than you need to. What if we saw that? You would say, that's totally unnecessary. What do you need that for? Because, again, anything that's not absolutely needed is considered a weight for a marathon runner. So for us, we're not running a physical marathon. We're running a race, a spiritual race. Who are we competing against? Other believers? Nope. Ourselves. We're competing against ourselves, and everyone has a unique race. And, and, and so he, there's all these imagery, all this imagery here that is, is specific for running our specific race to help us. So he says, lay aside the weight. What is a weight? Well, for most of us, it would probably be a Christian liberty. Something that we're free to do. There's nothing in Scripture against it. But for our unique race and what he's called us to, it's a weight. When I became a senior pastor, he revealed that my, there's other things that are, were liberties that needed to go. He did the same thing when I became an assistant pastor. There, there's just different chapters, different things that he's called us to that are going to require us to shed certain things that are not wrong in and of themselves. I mean, a backpack or a suitcase is not bad. They're not bad things. They're just completely unnecessary and not helpful in a marathon. So there's things that he can speak to us, freedoms 
which I have as a Christian, but weigh me down for my unique calling. That's really important to understand. We all have a unique calling. So we have very specific things that God wants to speak to us about that will free us up to, for our unique calling, with our background, with our, the things that we may struggle with, the things that we have a propensity to fall into, whatever. He can speak to us and tell us um, that we need to get rid of those things, and he tells us to do it. If we want to run with endurance, if we want to finish the race how he wants us to finish, it's not optional. We have to get, get rid of these weights that he talks about. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 23. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. So it's okay to have a suitcase and start a marathon. It's, it's, it's allowed. It's just stupid. You know, it's just, it's just not wise to do that. And so there are things that, you know, sometimes we can't see it as clearly, but the Holy Spirit's faithful to come in and say to us, you know, you shouldn't do that. Yeah, but so-and-so gets to do it, and they have the same calling as me. But yeah, they're not you. Just like your, the, the kids, you know, when you're, when you're telling them they can't do that. Well, the neighbor kids get to do it. Yeah, but your, your last name isn't theirs. You know, you're not, you don't live in their home. You live in our home. You can't do that. That's not, that's not right. So again, what constitutes a weight for me may not ever be a weight for you. And God's faithful to do that. And that's where we have to listen to him and all those things and shed any unnecessary things that, that, that don't need to be there. Again, these are things we are giving up because we want to be faithful and we want to finish this race. Notice he says every weight. Well, maybe 90% of the weights. I think, you know, but no, every weight. Every one that he says that needs to go to streamline my life, to get it free of distractions, to to give up some hobby, give up some whatever. I'm not going to check my Facebook 50,000 times a day. I'm going to check it three times or something, you know, whatever it is. I mean, he can show us that. He's so faithful to do that. But again, marathon runners don't think, try to get away with how much weight they can have. They just look at only what's necessary, and then they, they, they just carry those things. But next he also says to lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. Easily ensnares us. It does. And it's talking about having our feet tripped up. Having your feet ensnared. Sin ensnares us. It hurts us. It works against God's calling on our lives. There's things that he has been speaking to us about potentially and we've ignored it, we've shut it out and he says, I want you to deal with this. I want you to bring it to me. I want you to confess it. I want you to repent. I want you to have a plan, a practical plan on how to safeguard yourself and, or ways that you can come to me in prayer and ask for self-control, all those things. So the, 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 the runner doesn't want to get tripped up on something. He doesn't want his feet and legs becoming ensnared so he can keep running. Now, you would think that they were going through difficulty and trials and suffering, these Jewish believers, and God comes in and tells them to repent, that that would be a little bit maybe too much, but it was the, the most loving, gracious, appropriate thing that he could come in and say to them, that they needed to repent of these things you know it's easy for all of us to minimize the seriousness of sin in our lives and that's what i love about the holy spirit who can come in and just convict us and tell us it's serious you need to 
repent of that. He's saying it's, as we try to minimize it, he's saying you're in danger of not finishing the race. It's serious. We need to take it seriously. Have you ever known anybody that exhibited a pattern of behavior that was life-threatening and they didn't, they didn't even realize it? And you're trying to get through to them? You need to take this seriously. And you're like, we used to call it intervention. You know, you, all of a sudden you go into, not that I've been through this, but, you know, all of a sudden you're in a room, you know, all your loved ones and friends are there and they're doing intervention, they're interrupting everything and saying, you need to take this seriously. Well, God can do interventions on us by the Holy Spirit and say, this is serious. You need to take this seriously. Why, don't, why aren't you taking this seriously? So whatever it is, and all of us sin every day, we fall short, the standard is perfection, we know all that. John, 1 John 1, 9, the Christian bar of soap. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He knows that we're going to fall short. But he wants us to take those things to him and grow. We should be growing in holiness all the time. Now notice in verse 2, we look, we're, we're told that we're supposed to look to Jesus as we run this race. He says, looking unto Jesus the author and finisher of faith, who, was, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. When you run a race, you're not supposed to be looking around. You're running a marathon, and you're going through all this, and you're just like, hey, what's up? Oh, oh, wow, Dunkin' Donuts. I didn't know there was a Dunkin' Donuts here. Wow. Oh, they have a drive through too. Like, that's great, you know? Wow, check that out. I mean, you need to be looking where you're going. Why? Because you're going to trip. You're going to run into somebody. You're going to fall, potentially. You're not going to keep your stride the right way. You're not going to measure how well you're doing. You're supposed to, and it helps you to concentrate and, and, and to focus. We're supposed to have a focal point. Now, I know nothing about childbirth, but I've been in a room where someone's given birth, and they tell them to have a focal point, to focus on something, to concentrate, you know, all those things. Talk about feeling like, you know, I shouldn't be in this room. I'm, I'm not helping the situation. Uh, but they, you know, they talk about having a focal point to look, keep your eyes focused on something. And so um, it's interesting here is because we're supposed to keep our eyes on him, looking unto Jesus. He's supposed to be our focal point. He's supposed to be the one that we're focusing on. And he reveals here that he's our faith's originator and completes our faith. He's the one that was there convicting us of sin by his spirit that testified to us that we needed to trust in Jesus to, to save us and that he gave us a salvation as a free gift. He was there on that first day when we repented and we turned to him and, he, and his angels were rejoicing in heaven. He's with us as we go through this journey and then at the end of our lives when we go to be with him or at the rapture, he's going to be involved in that. Our faith began with him he sustains it, and he'll bring it to completion. He's the one that enrolled us in this marathon. He's the one that paid our entry fees to get into the marathon. And, and, but the thing is, he ran before us. He already modeled what it's like to, to run a marathon well. And we're supposed to be focused on him. See, these Jewish believers had forgotten that they were not alone. He re, the, this writer reminds them of that. You're not alone and that Jesus is overseeing our faith and wants to help us finish well. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, he said, Being confident of this very thing, that he who begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it 
till the day of Christ Jesus. So he, he says here, we have to recognize that he's the author and finisher of our faith. And look at, it says in the middle there, for who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. Think about that. I believe we were the joy that was set before him. I believe that when he had us as his focal point, he's the one that's focused on us and going to the cross, obeying the Father, and being the, the faithful sacrifice that we could never accomplish on our se- in ourselves. And he recognized that he needed to do that, and he had us in his sights there. And I love the fact that, it does, that God's word doesn't hold that back in terms of revealing it. That clearly we were something that he was focused on and he endured the cross despising the shame. So we can know from God's word here that he despised the shame of the cross. And again, not, 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 nothing that he went through was unnecessary because the father would never allow that if it wasn't necessary. And so because of what we deserved, it was necessary that he went through that shame. And notice he says, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's, when you sit down, that's describing a finished work there. He sat down at the right hand of God. He's interceding for us there. And it's, it's a finished work. Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. And so it's beautiful how he reveals all of that. Now next, he puts this, the suffering of these Jewish believers into perspective by focusing on what Jesus suffered. And he talks about that. He sat down at the right hand of God. Then he continues in verse 3 there, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted the bloodshed, striving against sin. So he says, For consider him. Again, keep him at your, with your, have that him be your focal point there, who endured such hostility from sinners. So he's comparing what we go through and their suffering these Jewish believers, they're suffering with what Jesus went through. And he's saying what you're going through is hard, it's difficult. He's not minimizing that, he's recognizing that. But he's telling them that in comparison to what Jesus went through, it's infinitely inferior. And he went before us, he was our example. He never calls us to do anything that he hasn't gone through first. And he calls us to be faithful, he calls us to endure, because that's the word that he uses there, who endured. Consider him who endured. The whole thing about a a long-distance run is about endurance. It's an endurance run. And this whole thing, this whole Christian life, is about endurance. And he says, Consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. It is not God's will that we remain discouraged and weary in our souls. He doesn't want that for us. He doesn't want us to be discouraged and weary in our souls. So he'll compensate supernaturally through his word, through his people, through his spirit, all those things to help get our focus back where it needs to belong. And that is on the Lord. Because no matter what we go through, no matter how difficult it is, that whatever we experience, it's nothing compared to what he's gone through. And he says, verse 4, you have not yet resisted the bloodshed striving against sin. And that's, that's true. None of us have. 
but we will be persecuted. Jesus said in John 15, 18 through 20, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me first before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. So <laughs> there's, a, there's a finishing point, a finishing line, rather, related to this race. When he talks about Jesus sat down at the right hand of God, he's saying that there's an end to the marathon. There was a, it was a time where he finished that and all of that. And he's saying the difficulty that you're going to receive, the persecution, the hardship, the discipline, there's an end to it. It doesn't go on forever. Can you imagine running a marathon and not knowing that it was going to end? And just thinking, it's, this, is, this is forever. You're just going to run this marathon, and you're just, it's going to go on and on and on and never end. God doesn't do that. He tells us that this is, there's an end to it. We can finish well. And, we can, and it, there's going to be an end. There's going to be a reward. And there's going to be a time where we receive our rewards from him. <clears throat> there's going to be an award ceremony. And we're, we're not going to have the American flag go up and, you know, all of that like the Olympics and everything. is going to be way better than that. But there's going to be a, a, an award ceremony, the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ, where he gives us rewards and blessings for our faithfulness, not because we deserved it, but because he was gracious and he used us and we allowed him to use us and all of that. Now notice in verses 5 and 6, he goes on to tell them to accept chastening from God. He says, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. So this is something, information that they knew at one point, because he says, you've forgotten. You've known this before, but you've forgotten, and we can too. He says, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And this isn't just, the imagery is not just corporal punishment, it's training, instruction, preparation it's not punitive he's not trying to hurt us he's not trying he's not repaying evil for evil or any of those things you always have someone's future in mind when you're when you're disciplining them whether it be corporal punishment or just instruction you have the future in mind and God has our best interest in mind he's thinking of our future he's thinking about how he wants to use us we want to be used in a greater and greater way in our relationship with the Lord, but so often we don't want what it requires to be used in a greater way. It requires endurance and patience. It requires brokenness. It requires, um, you know, brokenness includes unmet expectations and thinking God should work one way, but he ended up working another way. All those things as an expression of not God forsaking us, not God not showing us love, but actually showing us love and showing us that this is how you grow. This is how you gain godly character this is how you become less dependent on yourself and more dependent upon me this is how you become more humble and less impressed with what you know and more impressed with my word and what i have to tell you those are all that's the path for growth we can't resist it and we can't try to run from it because god's going to get his sanctification accomplished in us one way or the other he's going to win but he wants us to receive that and grow in that way in the way that he desires so it's important for us to understand that 
he, for the Lord, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And so we, we're, we're adopted kids. We're adopted into his family. That's not going to change. And he wants us to be so blessed by that, but to recognize that that includes some things that are, include difficulty. If you become adopted as a, as in this life, then you have to also deal with the difficult things of being in a family. The dysfunction that can be there at times, you know, but also the, the hard things that the parent's trying to impart into you or the child. And that's, that's what God is trying to do in us. We can't resist those things. And verses 7 through 11, he not only wants us to accept this chastening, but he also wants them to endure it. He says in verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Furthermore, we have had human fathers who corrected us, and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed for a few days chastened us as seemed best to them, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That is so true. No chastening seems joyful for the present. And when you discipline your children or your grandchildren, they don't understand. They don't understand why this is necessary. They resist it sometimes. They fight against it. But later on, when they're older and they're more mature, they realize, wow, that was so much wisdom that you had, that you would have trained me up that way, and you thank them for it. And it's no different for us. The things that we go through now, we want to throw a fit. We want to go throw our, the equivalent of throwing ourselves on the floor of Walmart and going, like, you're looking at your kids like, are they going to foam with the mouth and just do the whole thing? You know, and just show that they're possessed? Or is it just like, just partly uh, that, you know? And I mean, it's always the time where it's in front of the most amount of people, whatever, just throw in a tantrum. We can throw a tantrum too. We can present our case to the Lord and say why this is so unfair and all these things. And he's patient and gracious and loving and all of that. But the fact is, it's part of our race. And it's what he wants to use to make us more dependent upon him and to run better. So he wants us to take the weights that he speaks to us individually about, put those things aside. They're not worth missing out on the greater thing that he has for us and the calling that we get to enjoy. And the sin that so easily ensnares us, repent of that, turn to God, and, and ask for his grace to help us with all of those things. And then look at Jesus. He's our focal point. Look to him. He's our great example. He looked for us as his focal point as he endured the cross despising the shame and then accept not just accept but endure this chastening will willingly god you're you 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 are in control whatever you want for me i'm submit submitting to that you know what's best for me and having that heart submission and and if we do that and it's not just a one-time thing obviously right it's a ongoing thing we're going to be changed from the inside out and we're going to become more usable isn't that what we want don't we want to be usable more and more? We pray that all the time as leaders here to protect us, keep us usable because we can sabotage ourselves by not being 
teachable and humble and all these things. And he wants us that to increasingly grow in our lives. Because, because people are watching and there's eternal consequences. People are coming to conclusions about him based on our lives. Happens all the time. Now, we're not going to be perfect, and we're, we obviously want to model that his grace is sufficient and all those things. But, he, you know, people, there's a lot at stake. And he calls us to run that race and have perseverance, shed everything that we don't need to have, and focus on him. Because if we focus on him, we have our eyes on him, we can't lose. Because he's the great example we could ever possibly imagine related to running this race in this life. Amen? Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace that helps us to endure. Help us to run our race with faithfulness. God, help us to run in a way that pleases you. Lord, whatever you've spoken to your people about, Lord, regarding weight or sin or any of those things, just pray that you would meet them right where they're at and encourage them. Encourage your people this morning that you have great plans for them and you're a good God. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.